Today, I speak with Cindy Gallup, founder and CEO of Make Love Not Porn, the world's first user-generated, human-curated social sex platform which is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. With over 30 years of experience in brand building, marketing and entrepreneurialism, Cindy is a brand and business innovator, consultant, coach and keynote speaker who works with those who want to change the game in their particular sector. From brand and business innovation, leadership and advertising, to sex tech, social responsibility and diversity and inclusion, Cindy has worked with some of the biggest brands across a gamut of industries and her unique approach has seen her reach audiences around the world with her 2009 TED Talk, Make Love, Not Porn, attracting over 2.6 million views. Summarising her style as, I like to blow shit up, I am the Michael Bay of business, Cindy takes a radical, innovative and transformative approach to helping clients envision and achieve their futures, whether in leadership, branding or in creating more gender equal, diverse and inclusive workplaces. Cindy, thank you so much for joining me in conversation. What do you think is going on in the global human psyche right now? Um, I think everybody's pretty depressed, quite frankly. Um, well, um, hmm. the, um, the rank and file generally. Obviously, there are the elite um, 1% um, where a global pandemic and um, another very important dynamic, global Black Lives Matter protests have far less impact than on the rest of us. Um, but, but but right now, I think um, I think a couple of things. A, people are absolutely struggling everywhere in the world um, with all sorts of pressures at every level of society. Um, but B, um, I'm a great believer that adversity brings opportunity, and so I think that um, there is a total reset happening. There's shifting a lot of attitudes and mindsets that will actually be very beneficial for humanity as we go forwards. Brilliant. Sorry, I don't know what the sound is, but in the background, it sounds like... It's a classic New York sound. Is it? It's the bane of all of the lives of everyone who lives in the apartment building, which obviously in New York is the majority of people, um, because this happens, in, as any New Yorker can tell you, in every single New York apartment <laughs> and every single New York building. So we're transported to your apartment. That's that's all good and well. Exactly. That, that, that's the sound of New York in the background. <laughs> <laughs> so um, with the pandemic and the various crises that are kind of connected in with it, do you think that the last 12 to 18 months have influenced what we prioritise, both as individuals and within business? Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, here's a very interesting thing, because obviously this is something that we monitor very closely at my own startup, Make Love Not Porn. Mm. Pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. <laughs> um, we are the world's first and only user-generated, human-curated social sex video sharing platform. We are socializing and normalizing sex in the real world to make it easier for everyone to talk about, to promote consent, communication, good sexual values, and good mm. sexual behavior. We call ourselves the social sex revolution. The revolutionary part is not the sex, but the social. And I'm just, you know, summing that up so that our <laughs> listeners know um, exactly what I'm referring to when I go on to my uh, answer to your question. Because you know, to, um, from our perspective, and, and you know, that this absolutely applies generally and globally, the pandemic has proven that what we all thought for years is absolutely not the case. Because for years, everyone's been going, the future is digital, <laughs> AR, VR. You know, boy, oh boy, has the pandemic ever proven 
that what we are all desperate for on the other side of this is IRL human touch. Yeah. Intimacy, connection, love. You know, and and we now value so tremendously things we were utterly thoughtless about pre-pandemic. Mm. You know, the number of people on social media going, I would kill for a hug. That little careless gesture that 10 months ago nobody thought anything of that is now forbidden to us. And so in the sphere in which my business operates, human relationships, love and dating, sexuality, sexual connection, I believe that we have seen a profound shift in how important all of those things are to all of us and how much we value them. And by the way, that applies not just to people who are single like me. And, and by the way, I'm very happily single, but obviously, you know, in lockdown are a ton of people who are not very happily single. But it also applies to people who are in lockdown together as a couple, um, as a family. All of this is making us think about human relationship dynamics in a very different way. Mm. Indeed. And I think part of that, what you're talking about, that desire and longing for contact, for real intimacy, I think one of the things that also bled over into the business sphere, if we take it in that direction, is perhaps more of a sensitivity to people's intimate lives, their private lives, and how that connects with work. Because obviously, with everyone working remotely, we have to acknowledge the fact that they have a richer life that exists beyond the confines of the office. Do you think that that's changed the way in which we see our relationships with our work colleagues and business partners? I think it absolutely has. But I think that's going to take a while to work its way into breaking down the corporate structure. Hmm. Because... There are a lot of businesses, unfortunately, who have not shifted their own perspectives and cultures and decisions and rulemaking um, to accommodate that. And you will know this, obviously, as well as I do, but who that really damages is women. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, and again, this is true globally, the pandemic has hit women hardest yeah. in terms of forcing women out of the workforce because childcare still massively unfairly in straight couples falls to the woman. Mm -hmm. And also, by the way, in same-sex couples, sexism and bias on the employer front um, also have the same effect. And so I think that the understanding that there needs to be a massive shift is very much present in the workforce, but not necessarily as present as it should be mm. at the top of the company. Mm. And actually, to that point, you recently wrote a fascinating article in Harvard Business Review with our friend Tomas, titled Seven Leadership Lessons Men Can Learn from Women. And of course, that feels, to me at least, particularly poignant in the light of the fallout that you've described, and also the differences in success that world leaders have had in responding to the pandemic. And there's lots of articles being written about thoughts as to why some of the most successful approaches were led by women. And in the piece that you write, you've written some fantastic examples where you suggest that rather than advising female execs to act more like men to get ahead, that society would be better served by more male leaders trying to emulate women. What are some of the lessons that you feel that we could all learn from much more effective, perhaps, female leadership? Well, first of all, Natalie, let me pick up on your first point, because mm. I've been interviewed a great deal about how female leaders have led nations through the pandemic much more successfully than male ones have. And I want to completely eradicate a very common misconception around that. Mm -hmm. Female leaders have been way better than male leaders 
uh, leading through the pandemic. Absolutely incontrovertible fact. This is not because, and this is where most people's minds go when they look at that fact, this is absolutely not because women are more empathetic, (laughs) women are more touchy-feely. Fuck that shit. It is not because of that, okay? The reason women leaders have led through the pandemic far more effectively is because if you are a woman in politics, by the time you get to the absolute top of the political structure in your nation, you have had to make it through so much sexism, Mm. bias, racism in a number of cases, sexual harassment, you have a backbone of fucking steel and you are so fucking good at what you do because of all the barriers you've had to overcome that men don't. Mm -hmm. And the women who've made it to the top are the few who had the tenacity and the determination and quite often the sheer luck of not running into absolutely, you know, irremovable barriers, Mm. many, many more women fell by the wayside on that appallingly challenging path. By the time you are a woman leading a nation, you are absolutely fucking brilliant at everything somebody leading a nation needs to be in a completely gender neutral way. Mm. That is why women have led countries more effectively through the pandemic than men have. Because they've had to overcome so much more. They've had to be so fucking brilliant. By the time you get to the top of your nation's political structure, you have to be so extraordinarily good at what you do versus, and and you absolutely know Tomasa's brilliant thesis as well as I do, we focus quite rightly on the enormous number of barriers that face brilliant women, but a far bigger problem is a lack of obstacles for incompetent men. Mm -hmm. Incompetent men head every single nation that, that men lead, and we have absolutely seen the results in this pandemic. Do you think that we're starting to see a shift in terms of the leadership qualities we're talking about valuing now? No. No, of course we're not. And we live in a patriarchal society. Every single institution is male-dominated. Every single um, business institution and organisation is male-dominated. And no, we are not seeing a shift, uh, which is why women all around the world are absolutely focused on making those breakthroughs to ensure that we do. Um, But the really important thing, Natalie, is never ever ask that question in the passive tense. Oh, are we seeing a shift? We only see a shift when you and I and everybody else makes that shift happen. Mm. Shifts do not happen as a naturally occurring phenomenon. Shifts happen when human beings, extremely motivated, determined, and utterly committed human beings make those shifts happen. So let's let's start there then, because obviously there's a lot of people who are determined to change the status quo. And it's not just the women, obviously we've, we've mentioned Tomas, who's very much an ally in this in this fight. What are some of the things that you feel we need to do to step up, to start making that shift happen? So um, let let me just pick up on one thing you said there, and I'm sure Mm. Tomas won't mind my sharing (laughs) this. Um, Tomas is fantastic, obviously. We love him to death. Um, He is, you know, an ally through and through. But um, when we were writing that article together for the Harvard Business Review, even an ally cannot see things the right way. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that men's experience is different from our experience. Mm. And 
quite frankly, as far as I'm concerned, the first part of being a male ally is acknowledging that. Mm. Because even when you are determined to be an ally, unconsciously, you come at things in a way that is not allyship. Okay? <laughs> and and the, the collaborative writing process that Tomas and I went through on that article was very interesting because it was indicative of that fact, as I'm sure Tomas w- would equally honestly um, say to you in terms of the things I pointed out to him, he was unconsciously doing within his approach mm. um, to how we, how we you know, mm-hmm. um, went about that. Um, and then the things I, I said to him, you know, to, um, were in danger of coming across in the wrong kind of way. Um, so for male allies, um, because, because I get asked by men regularly, so Cindy, what can we do to help? Yeah. You know, how can I help you and every other woman? And it's very simple. You know, I say to every man, you just need to do two things. Number one, listen to women mm. because you don't. Every day we are man-terrupted, mansplained to, <laughs> talked over, mm. ignored, not heard. So number one, stop and listen to women. Really listen. And then number two, believe women mm. because men don't do that either. Look at every report of sexual harassment and rape where instantly you know, the victim is the guilty party mm. in, you know, even apparently, you know, um, rational and ally type male eyes. So believe what women tell you, because our experience is not your experience. Mm. And when you do those two things, when you listen to women and you believe women, when you start doing those two things, what you need to do to help us will completely fall out of that. Mm. Because the women all around you, when you begin listening to them, genuinely listening, and you begin believing them wholeheartedly, um, they will tell and show you what to do to help them. Mm. That listening piece is so crucial. I wonder with one of the things that's been on my mind quite recently in terms of giving voice to difficult subjects, difficult experiences, um, is this theme of cancel cancel culture. And I know that it's a very difficult theme because it's it's quite complex. So on the one hand, you have situations where people rightly voice horrific things that have happened. So an example would be the Me Too movement that gave voice to all of these stories that previously had been ignored and suppressed. And at the same breath, I think one of the risks that we find is that when we bring these things to light, um, we can swing in the opposite direction, whatever the theme, and start to deplatform people and break down the space that we need to have more deep, constructive uh, conversation. What do you think about how we can interact in this time when there's a lot more cancel culture in a way that we can express our positions and concerns generatively, constructively, where we can have these difficult conversations and actually affect change? There's a huge difference between cancel culture and actual harassment and abuse. Mm. The first happens to white men and they shriek about it, and the second happens to the rest of us. So cancel culture is not a thing. It's been made to be a thing by the white men who the very first time somebody delivers to them one one hundredth of what women, (laughs) black people, people of color, LGBTQ, the disabled, get in our lives every single day. They go, oh, my God, cancel culture, cancel culture, cancel culture. (laughs) Fuck that shit. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I could think is I could also think of a couple of women who've who've had this levied against them. And I think, do you not think that there's, I don't know, maybe you don't, maybe maybe this is white me. women, white women, any chance? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. precisely. Yep. Yep. No. So so internalized misogyny. Um, yep. Um, white men and privileged white women squawk about cancel culture. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought of it from that perspective, but that's a really interesting. Yeah, that's a really interesting view. So in terms of then creating a space where legitimate conversations can be had, where people can actually um, engage better, do you think there are certain values that we need to see businesses stand up for that they're not yet standing up for? Um, no, it's very simple. That's not the answer. The answer is fund the rest of us. And, and let me explain what I mean by that. What you're asking derives from um, the... Um, from a holistic fact about the um, global tech landscape. Mm -hmm. The young white male founders of the giant tech platforms that dominate our lives today are not the primary targets, online and offline, of harassment, mm. abuse, racism, violence, rape, sexual assault, revenge porn. Therefore, they do not and they did not, proactively design for the prevention of any of those things on their platforms. Mm. And we are seeing the results of that all around us every single day. Those of us who are most at risk every day, women, black people, people of color, LGBTQ, the disabled, we design safe spaces and safe experiences. But white male venture capitalists and white male investors won't fund us. Hmm. White men get funded on potential. It's really easy if you're a white male VC to look at a white male bro founder and go, oh, he reminds myself at his age. I can see myself in him. He's great to have a beer with. Yeah, we reckon he can do this. Let's give him $10 million to do it. Hmm. White women get funded on proof and not even then. So with a woman, it's a completely different set of criteria. Well, have you done this before? Have you done it long enough? Have you done it well enough? We're going to grill you on every single number in your pitch deck and we're not going to fund you at the end of it. Mm. Black women don't get funded, period. 0.2% of all venture funding goes to black female founders. Wow. Um, to, uh, only 2%, by the way, of all venture funding goes to women founders, period. Wow. So everything you're talking about is derived from that one fact young white male founders are not the targets of everything the rest of us are. They didn't take account of it. They didn't give it a moment's thought. They did not design for it. And they don't care about preventing it because it doesn't impact them. Hmm. But what do you think happens when there's enough of a groundswell of protest? So we saw um, the amplification of the Black Lives Matter movement happening earlier last year. And I'm wondering how much of the change that will come off the back of that will be short-term virtue signaling and um, kind of washing versus how much will actually alter the way in which people structure their businesses, change their practices. What are your thoughts around the change that can come out of that kind of social pressure? What change? So still none. Who do you know who's talking about Black Lives Matter right now? Yeah, it's gone quiet on the social front, but I wonder if there are companies who are changing initiatives behind the doors. Because I think a lot of a lot don't of don't make me don't <laughs> make me laugh. No, of course not. 
and and by the way, there's a lot of talk about all of this on social. When when you make sure that your social media network is full of black people, of color people, black women,、mm. no, nothing's happening. So, what would we have to do to change that? Because I think obviously we need to make sure that people are able to be judged on their merit, which clearly there's a huge amount of bias against at the moment. What changes would、Absolutely. you suggest? Absolutely. So, what you do is what nobody, unfortunately, is doing at the moment, which is you hire me to help you do that. And here's why I say that, Natalie. So,、um, you know, unfortunately.、Um, Because I have enormous challenges raising funding for Make Love Not Porn, even though we are changing the world through sex, I am not able to pay myself a living wage out of my own startup. I have to hustle alongside it to support myself through paid、um, public speaking and consultancy.、Mm-hmm. Um, and、uh, so I, I, I absolutely、um, consult. On diversity inclusion, but in a very specific context, I am not the unconscious bias trainer. I am not a diversity inclusion coach. What I am is a hard-headed business strategist, and what I do is I help companies completely re-engineer their day-to-day working processes and operations to integrate. Diversity and inclusion as a key driver of future growth, profitability, and better business outcomes.、Um, but as I say,、um, nobody is hiring me to do that. And what I mean by that is, in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests last year, a ton of companies reached out、um, asking me to, to work with them on this. But when I sent them my proposal, suddenly they were not prepared to put their money where their mouth is.、Wow. And by the way, this is not just me. Again, in my network, I have many, for example, black women friends who are unconscious bias coaches, diversity inclusion trainers, and nobody wants to pay them either.、Um, and in fact,、um, there's a whole bunch of threads going in various areas of my social universe.、Um, next month, February is Black History Month. You would not believe the number of bill, multi-billion-dollar companies who are asking black women, black men, to come in and talk to their company or run a session of Black History Month for free. Wow! It's out fucking rageous. That's galling. I actually, I, I'm quite speechless. I didn't realise that there was such a little that there was such little follow through. Um, yep, no, no zero follow through. And let me let me explain to you exactly what it is that I do、mm. that would that would absolutely deliver what you've just talked about, which is a level playing field.、Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give you. A, I'm going to use an actual example、um, because I got a call, and and this was actually before the Black Lives Matter protests. Because I get this kind of call all the time. Very very senior white man in my industry, marketing, global.、Uh, Very well known overseas, a huge global company, huge global portfolio of brands contacted me、um, to say that he he said, you know, I've got this really really big、um, global CMO position, Cindy, and I want to hire a black woman. Who do you know?、Mm. <laughs> so I said to him, it doesn't work like that. Here's how it works: if you genuinely want to hire a black woman into this extremely senior position within your global organization. Here are the four things that you have to do before you even think of progressing that goal.、Mm. And by the way, he'd reached out、um, a little while earlier, so I had a few days to do my research. So I said to him, number one, 
you have to completely re-engineer your job description for this role. I said, you have written this job description to appeal to white men. Hmm. And the evidence of that is that you posted this job description on LinkedIn, and under it is a very, very long comments thread, which is full of white men either putting themselves forward or recommending other white men. (laughs) So um, I showed him how to completely re-engineer that job description. And um, a number of these points were very specific to the company and the role. I'm obviously not revealing those. So, but I'll give you one example. In this job description, he had written of the candidate, you will have a creative track record that makes us all jealous. And I said, no, she won't. Because if you are a black woman, you have never, ever been promoted into a role where you could make that happen. Mm. So you remove that from the job description. And instead you write, this is the opportunity you've been waiting for to finally unleash all that creativity Mm. that you want to do great things with. Mm. Because that's a black woman situation in our industry. It's totally different language, totally different. Right. Um, so, so number one, what I do, Natalie, as a consultant is I do what everybody needs. And as I say, nobody wants to pay me to do. I help you, first of all, re-engineer um, the way you advertise, put out, um, you know, to, um, specify um, what you want to hire. Number two, I said to him, you have to completely re-engineer your recruiter brief. I said, I know, without even having had this conversation with you, that you have briefed your recruiters to look at candidates who are already doing this job somewhere else. Don't do that. Brief your recruiter. If you generally want a black woman in this role, brief your recruiters to search for brilliant black talent one, two, three levels down. Mm. Because I can guarantee to you that black women three levels below the job that you are advertising for will do a far better job (laughs) in that role than white men currently doing it who've never had to face one hundredth of the obstacles they have. Mm, mm. Okay, so so the second thing I do is I help you re-engineer how you brief your recruiters. I said, number three, you have to completely re-engineer your interview process because, and by the way, obviously I'm familiar with this company, it's full of white men. (laughs) When... White men interview other white men. They start from a position of positivity. They are actively looking for reasons to hire that white man. When white men interview the rest of us, they start from a position of negativity. They are actively looking for red flags. They are actively looking for reasons not to hire us. And so you have to completely re-engineer how you interview and your interview process to eradicate that syndrome. And again, this is what I do as a consultant. I advise you on how to do that. And then the fourth thing I said was, you need to re-engineer your working environment. Because if you generally want a black, brilliant black female candidate, when that black female candidate looks at your working environment, and when she sees, as she will, that it is full of white men, She's going to go, why the fuck Mm. would I want to put myself in there? I know exactly what's going to happen. And Mm. I said, it's very easy to re-engineer a working environment ahead of going after black female candidates. All you do is you look downwards within your company 
for all the brilliant black talent in it that's been kept down for years, passed over for promotion, not offered the big opportunities, not given the pay raises and the bonuses, and you promote them immediately to where they ought to be. And then you have a working environment that you can invite a black woman into because she will see that this is an environment where it is possible for black talent to thrive. Does that make my point? Mm. Yeah, it's a complete reorganisation and a complete reorganisation of how you think about it and how you structure the way that you hire and the way that you, I guess, what you prioritise, whether you're going to prioritise white incompetency, (laughs) as Tomas would put it, or whether you prioritise people who are really actively skilled for those skills. Yeah, yeah. But let me move this conversation to a slightly different area, which is something which is also affecting all of us right now, which is the way in which we connect with people through our screens. So one of the things that you do and that many of us do is we work remotely and we have to give talks and we have to compel and motivate people through action, to action through our screens. What are some of the ways in which you found we can do that, where we can reach out and create that connection, even if it's virtual and remote? So here's the the other thing that people are currently refusing to pay me for. So, um, as I said, I support myself through consultancy and through public speaking. And obviously, the moment the pandemic struck, my speaking income stream completely evaporated. And the ridiculous thing, and and again, by the way, um, this is not just me, because um, I have a lot of friends who make a living speaking. So this is is our our collective experience. People organizing virtual events, virtual fireside chats, virtual summits, extremely wrong-headedly don't want to pay for remote speaking. And that is completely the opposite way to think because being compelling through a screen requires a completely different skill set. And it's not one that the white men boring for yeah. Britain and being paid $100,000 a gig on stages all around the world pre the pandemic are good at. I'm very good at this. Uh, And essentially, it actually requires you to do a number of things, which, um, uh, um, incidentally, I I absolutely want to tout um, in this context, because I'd love to give her any promotion I can. My dear friend, Katerina Scoburn, who is London-based, who um, was doing this way before the pandemic, and the pandemic obviously has been a boom. Um, You can find her at beyourbestremoteself.com because she is a presentation and speaking and general executive leadership Mm. coach. And for years, she's been coaching people on how to come across well remotely. Um, Because obviously, pre-pandemic, people who who work internationally, you know, um, I mean, there have been all all sorts of requirements, um, you know, um, even before we all defaulted to Zoom. Um, And so she is absolutely brilliant in a whole bunch of very specific things. But I would say, um, first of all, that, you know, the interesting thing is, um, the principle um, in this context is exactly the same as the principle of everything else. It's not about moving what you used to do IRL online. It's about reinventing what you used to do IRL in a way that capitalizes Mm. on now being remote and online. And so, you know, I'll give an example um, from my perspective. I, I enormously benefit as a speaker from remote speaking because, and again, I've been saying this for years, um, and when I give presentation coaching, you know, you are the presentation, not your slides. So the first thing I did um, when I began remote speaking in the pandemic is I dumped slides. 
I now never use slides when speaking remotely. They don't work remotely. And it's a very big mistake um, to, for anyone to use them. Um, and mm. I'm fine with that because mm-hmm. my presentation approach and style um, is, you know, I am the narrative and the slides are simply there to land certain points. And I always remember years ago, I spoke, um, I did a 50-minute talk at um, Dublin Web Summit um, on, I think, Make Love Not Porn. And I remember, um, I remember a man tweeting afterwards it was only when Cindy Gallup came off the stage that I realized she hadn't used any slides. <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, you absolutely get all the information you need without needing those, those visual wow. cues. Um, so I dumped slides. Then um, I'm somebody who is very happy being spontaneous. And um, what I mean by that is historically IRL, and, 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 and by the way, mm. I still do the same thing now with remote conferences. A lot of speakers, especially those pontificating white men I referenced earlier, only want to come into the event, go deliver their talk and leave again. I always ask to be able to attend the event um, for as long as it runs ahead of me speaking. Um, I'm regularly um, the grand finale um, because people know that I can absolutely close the event the way they want me to. Um, and so that often means, you know, sitting through being there for one, two, three days beforehand. And the reason that's um, important for me is because, you know, I obviously pr- have prepared mm. my presentation in advance. And, and by the way, again, like those white men who give the same presentation over and over again, I, I take a brief every time. I ask my client what their business goals are. I ask them what they want the audience to leave my talk thinking, feeling, and doing, and then I craft and customize a talk to deliver against that. Um, and, and so I, I've obviously prepared my talk in advance. Mm. I've rehearsed the shit out of it because I'm also religious about only occupying the time slot I've been given. Those white men overrun all the time. <laughs> but then, you know, I listen to all the other sessions and I gain information about the company, about the sector, about the market trends. And as I absorb it, I incorporate it into what I'm going to say. And, and by the way, you know, if I've, ha- if I've had to deliver my slides, you know, um, uh, like a week before, before the conference, which is often the case because I have to, have to put the whole, you know, um, audio visual shebang together. Um, that's fine because my slides are only to land certain points. I can change my narrative right mm-hmm. up to and in the moment. And I do. And so, you know, I, I will absorb um, everything and I will then incorporate all of that into my talk to make it extra relevant. Um, so I'm, I'm very comfortable presenting remotely because I do exactly the same thing um, in, in a remote context. I'm very happy adapting on the fly what I'm saying. And I'm especially happy doing that because I welcome, again, something that... Um, remote um, event organizers have not thought about sufficiently, which is I welcome um, Zoom chat. Because historically, IRL at conferences at events, what happened was Hmm. the speaker stood on the stage, the audience sat there, the audience listened. At the end of the talk, you know, the audience put their hands up or they came up to mics, asked questions, the speaker answered. Hmm. Um, Today, when you speak remotely, what is wonderful is, first of all, the audience gets to talk to each other while you talk. They get to interact. They amplify what you're saying. So I can see, and, and by the way, I will admit, I'm enormous. I, I, have a, I have a huge advantage over a lot of other people in this because I speed read. 
I taught myself to speed read when I was a kid. I cannot tell you how I do it. Um, I was a voracious reader. My father really fed that, <laughs> gave me loads of books to read. Um, I, I read lightning fast, which was extremely useful at university for essays and so on, and, and, and has been extremely useful in business ever since, as you can imagine. So I am able, while I'm speaking, um, on occasion to look at the chat and to see what's being said. And, you know, I will reference an article or something Someone in the chat will go, oh, you know, what was that article she mentioned? And somebody else will drop it into the chat. And so, you know, my points are being amplified as I make them. But also mm. I can keep an eye on, mm. you know, somebody confused about something. Somebody asked a question in the chat as I go versus, by the way, the, the Zoom Q&A that, that the, you know, the host or the MC or the moderator will refer to at the end. And so I can, in the moment, respond to the things that people want to know more about or are asking a really interesting question about. Um, and, you know, I observe that very few conference organizers, event mm. organizers, are redesigning what they're doing online around, as I say, these new and beneficial dynamics to create a much more compelling remote experience. Mm. I love this um, aspect that you weave in of being able to change things in real time, to dwell on certain things that need a bit more... Um, that we need a bit more detail or clarification. I think that kind of ability to reflect with other people is really, really valuable. In terms of how people use these platforms, then, because it does sound as though we've just transported some of our old habits and planted them into a virtual context and not taken the time, in many instances, to change how we use them. What do you think? What do you think could be a better way to run virtual events? So you mentioned not having slides. Do you find that there's another rhythm that works well? So, for instance, I'm thinking like shortened talks. Maybe there's breakout sessions. Is there something in particular that you that you really enjoy working towards in terms of dynamic on these? Um, to, to be perfectly frank, Natalie, you are asking me what people pay me to advise them on. So I'm not oh. going to answer that question. <laughs> no, okay, fine. Okay, so in that case, let's move into a slightly different area because you've got 15 minutes or so left. I want to talk a little bit about long-term success and resilience of businesses. Um, and given where we are now and your experience, if you had to pick just one quality that you felt would be key for the long-term success and resilience of a business, what would you suggest that to be? Um, I think that um, any business that wants to be successful and resilient long-term, um, it's, it's very, very simple. There is a huge amount of money to be made out of taking women seriously. Mm -hmm. Any business that wants to be stormingly successful and resilient for the long term needs to completely change the way it is currently led, managed, hiring, promoting, bonusing, championing, compensating, and it needs to focus on women instead of men. Mm -hmm. Great. So, the business led by women, managed by women, um, run by women, disrupted by women, innovated by women is the business of the future. And men have no idea how much happier they would be working in that business. Mm. So if there was, because you, you give a lot of talks, you are generous with your time. And so I wonder if there was a, quest, a question that you wish people would ask you, but they haven't yet, what question would that be? What question do you wish people just you know, they just fling it at you like, oh, not heard that one before. Yep. Um, uh, um, I wish people would ask me, how much can I pay you to come and consult with us, Cindy? Okay. So if you're listening to this, or you CEOs who want to rapidly and quickly change your uh, your situation, your organisation, get in touch. Absolutely. So, yeah. <laughs> 
So the last two questions then, and I think we're probably going to get, well, we've had a taste for this, but I'd love to ask you just, just to end on this note. What kind of world do you want to build and what one thing can we do to help us get us there? Um, so I'm building the world I want to live in. I'm building through Make Love Not Porn um, a complete global transformation. And let me explain what I mean by that. Make Love Not Porn's single-minded mission is to help make it easier for every single person in the world to talk openly and honestly about sex. Now, when I say that, because we do not do that currently, people do not get how massively, profoundly, society transformative that would be. And here's what I mean. I designed Make Love Not Porn as a business around my own beliefs and philosophies. One of my philosophies is that everything in life and business starts with you and your values. So I regularly ask people this question, what are your sexual values? And nobody can ever answer me because we're not taught to think like that. Hmm. Our parents bring us up to have good manners, work ethic, sense of responsibility, accountability. Nobody ever brings us up to behave well in bed, hmm. but they should because in bed values like empathy, sensitivity, generosity, kindness, honesty, respect are as important as those values are in every other area of our lives where we're actively taught to exercise them. Mm. So this is my vision of a world in which Make Love Not Porn finally gets funded to achieve our social mission at scale. Parents will bring their children up openly to have good sexual values and good sexual behavior in the same way that parents currently bring kids up to have good values and behavior in every other area of life. Mm. We will therefore cease to bring up rapists because the only way that you end rape culture, and this really is the only way, is by inculcating in society and openly talked about, understood, operated, and very importantly, aspired to gold standard of what constitutes good sexual values and good sexual behavior. Mm. When we mm. do that, we also end Me Too. We end sexual harassment, abuse, violence, all areas where the perpetrators currently rely on the fact that we do not talk about sex to ensure victims will never speak up, never go to authorities, never tell anybody. When we end that, we massively empower women and girls worldwide. When we do that, we create a far happier world for everybody, including men. And when we do that, we are one step closer to world peace. Mm. I talk about Make Love Not Porn as my attempt to bring about world peace, and I'm not joking. And bear in mind, Make Love Not Porn is a business. Make Love Not Porn is built on my belief that the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. Mm. So um, what can people do to help me get there? You can fund me. My biggest obstacle finding investors is the social dynamic that I call fear of what other people will think, <laughs> because it is never about what the person I'm talking to thinks. When you understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, nobody can argue with it. The business case is clear. It's always people's fear of what they think other people think, which operates around sex, unlike any other area. Yeah. And, you know, frustratingly, while other startup founders can do their research and target when they're looking for funding and investors, I can't because I know my investors make love not porn are out there. They are impossible to find by the usual means because the thing they have in common 
your desire to fund Make Love Not Porn is entirely a function of your personal sexual journey. It's a function of your personal lens on sex and sexuality driven by your personal experience. And mm. there's no way to research for that. So um, anybody who signs up for the future I've just spelled out and is in a position to fund Make Love Not Porn to achieve that vision, Cindy at makelovenotporn.com. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the themes we explored, please visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you've enjoyed the series, please do share it with your friends and give it a rating or review. And for more insights and insider tips, you can join my newsletter as well. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.